Welcome to Grant Thornton's Navigating the New Normal podcast series. My name is Velvet Bell Templeman, and I'm here talking to Vince Troppiano, tax partner at Grant Thornton, and Phil Corey, political editor at the Australian Financial Review. Today, we're talking about the federal budget. Thanks so much for joining us, Vince and Phil. That's a pleasure, Velvet Bell. No worries, Velvet. Now, this was hyped up as a once-in-a-lifetime budget, a job-maker budget. Did it deliver? Uh, well, it's way too early <laughs> to, to determine that because uh, the, the, the aim of the budget was to create jobs. So we'll have to just keep an eye on the unemployment figures over the next few months uh, and years. And look, it won't be the end of the, um, the effort. I mean, there's another economic statement due out in... December and then there's another budget in May May next year before we go to the election so probably by then we'll have an idea as to whether it is working or not and if it's not the government will have ample opportunities to make changes or or introduce new measures. Certainly circumstances seem to have made it a once in a lifetime budget you'd hope that we don't get this sort of scenario again and I think Phil's right I think it's still a bit too early to say but obviously there's examples there of some spending and stimulus measures that should assist the economy, sort of trading its way out of the current circumstances. And there's some other things in there, certainly from a tax perspective, where I see some benefits with the instant asset write-off and the like, and then supporting industry, supporting business with you know the subsidies for the hiring of um, under 35s jobless. So I think there's some green seeds there, but uh, it'll still be too early to tell how this is going to play out. Tax reform and streamlining regulation was supposed to be a key feature of the government's response to COVID, wasn't it? Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I heard much about reform last Tuesday. Look, there was a bit of, there was a fair bit of deregulation in there. The the, the changes to the insolvency laws and the relaxation of of, of the credit rules for banks, though the responsible lending obligations, which Labor brought in after the GFC, the government wants to unwind those. So there's a little bit of dereg. We're waiting to see more by the end of this month, early next month on industrial relations. But again, it won't be a big thing because the Prime Minister is not an ideological sort of person. He's not going to do anything like work choices. And he's aware that he's trying to build a consensus for change. So we'll probably see some fiddling around the edges. But you're right. Look, it wasn't, it wasn't supposed to be a reform budget. It was just a fairly crude exercise in job creation in one of those measures that Vince just described, you know, the, um, the investment allowance for business and, and, and so forth. So, uh, again, you know, if they do want to have a crack at reform, there's a big chance uh, before the next election, although reform by its very nature tends to be politically difficult. So I guess if the government's not prepared to have a crack at it this far out, I, I, I doubt they're going to do anything you know, crazy brave or otherwise closer to the election, which could well be this time next year. And, and from a tax perspective, there wasn't any big bang tax reform. There, there was a little bit of tinkering at the edges, ostensibly to reduce some red tape and, and support small business. The, some of the small business tax breaks, the thresholded increase from 10 to 50 million turnover. There's also some FBT relief for entities up to 50 million turnover. But it, it wasn't the sort of big announcements we would hope for and and maybe that is also a function of the circumstances that maybe this wasn't the time for some massive tax reform and and really uh, changing things up but we'd hope to see that with the next budget and various other announcements but it it really didn't come through last week. From a tax perspective there wasn't Mm -hmm. any great reductions in complexity or any other simplifications 
of note that would would uh, assist business in, in getting on with business in this environment. One of the government's concerns from a political and economic point of view, if you do do a reform, let's say the most commonly advocated one is you know, lower the company tax rate and you know, the investment allowance in the budget was clearly a big down payment or an alternative to that. There's always got to be some sort of revenue offset and people always point towards increasing the GST you know, to fund more efficient taxes. And the trouble is right now, a, a lot of people are out of work and so increasing the price of things would just be politically uh, mad but also even if you were to flag some sort of reform down the track i know i know this for a fact that the government thinks if you were to forecast an increase in a tax even in a year's time that would that would shatter what's left of confidence so that's that's another reason uh, why they just don't want to go down that road uh, serious tax reform i think you know whether it's wrong or right really requires the economy to be doing fairly well if it's not doing fairly well, then it's really hard to create losers when there's already so many. Oh, look, I, I think that's right, Phil. Uh, and, and your point about the company tax rates is an important one. Though. Interestingly enough, there's been a lot of change in this budget with personal income tax rates. And as it currently stands, personal income tax still makes up, I think, the biggest part of government mm. revenue. Uh, I think it's about 40-something percent, whereas I think company tax rates are around the 19, 20% mark. So, you know, we, we're always advocating for reduction in company tax rate from a, a global competitiveness stage, if, if nothing else, compared to our, you know, major trading partners and the like, and to encourage more business development. So I think in this environment where there has been some fairly drastic surgery in bringing forward the personal cuts um, and given size of the deficit and the like, that consideration can still be given to looking at reducing the company tax rate and for a larger group rather than simply the 50 million turnover and below. I mean, we advocate a lot for mid-sized business, which is anything up to say 500 million. And that's an area that's really crying out for some, mm. some greater support. So, you know, I, I think your point is right that it's difficult for some real tax reform in the current circumstances, but I do think that there are some other opportunities and there's still some things that we need to keep on the table. Now then, of course, we had the opposition deliver their response to the budget last Thursday. Anthony Albanese committed to spending $6.2 billion to remove caps and increase rebates for childcare if they were to come into office. Childcare wasn't something in the government's budget. Was there much else different? Look, there's, the most complaints about the budget were over things that weren't in there. Right? <laughs> no one really complained about the stuff that was in there. In fact, it raced through the, Quen the Senate quicker than I can ever remember a budget doing because it shows it was actually more a Labor budget than a coalition budget. Childcare is, is an interesting one. I mean, the government made it free for several months during the, um, the worst part of the lockdown. And I think what they feared came to pass is that people quite got used to the idea of it being free and wanted it to stay that way, <clears throat> uh, even though it was made very clear at the outset <laughs> that wouldn't be the case. They actually did have a look at trying to keep it free before they brought back in the existing system of means-tested rebates and so forth, but it's just way too expensive and we can see even the opposition didn't go that far. The $6.2 is about $2 billion a year it sort of tweaks the, the percentage of the subsidies that people get back. But the big one is removing that cap of $10,500, which people sort of tend to hit two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through the financial year, and then you're paying full, full, full freight through to the end of the financial year, and that can act as a real disincentive for one of the people to go back to work, which is often the woman. So from a productivity point of view, it was a good measure, I think. But 
it does come at a cost. And I notice the government is attacking it along the lines that it delivers a high income family the same the same uh, break that, that the state three tax cuts would deliver about $11,000 a year. So um, I don't see the government going there, but they may backflip because it's, it is a big issue and they do have a tin ear, I think this government, to the female vote. The Prime Minister's office is very bloke heavy. They're not anti-women, but I just think sometimes they just don't see, see the full picture. And yeah, Labor did what they did for a reason. As a firm, we'd lodged a submission, a pre-budget submission back in August, um, outlining some of the things that we would like the government to consider as part of the budget. And interestingly enough, the additional investment in childcare was one of, our, one of the platforms in our submission. So uh, I was kind of delighted to see what um, the opposition leader put forward uh, last Thursday night, because it is something which we had considered would be supporting local, local workers and, and therefore also supporting local business. So that was certainly a positive for us. What happens with it, as I guess Phil's been talking about in the political environment is, is, is an interesting one. But um, that was certainly something that was pleasing to us that it's, it's on the table as discussion piece. Mm. Now, the big spending seems to be transformative for the economy. We're talking sovereign capability, not just global connectivity. What are your thoughts on their new focus areas, being modern manufacturing, renewable energy and a digital economy? I reckon this is the sort of most under-discussed aspect of what's been going on, not just in the budget, but in the last couple of years, is just the, the outright level of intervention now um, in once the former free market, if you like. I mean, in the energy sector, the market has clearly failed consumers. So there's been the need for some sort of intervention. I mean, that's what happens when you privatise services that are as essential as oxygen and then try and connect it up into some uh, national grid infrastructure, which doesn't works on paper, but not in reality. And so you've got all sorts of uh, adverse things, mainly really expensive power prices and, and governments, even though they've sold off these assets, still get the blame. But that intervention we've seen in the energy sector, I think, is now sort of everywhere. Uh, yeah, basically, we had the Prime Minister in the lead up to the budget. The government picked winners in the manufacturing sector, nominated six areas of advanced manufacturing in which Australia had either a comparable or a competitive advantage and said that's where we're going to um, direct incentives. And when you couple that with them also sort of saying this is the energy future we envisage, which is largely gas uh, all down the East Coast uh, until if and when renewables are reliable enough, it is, it is, I mean, it's, you could sort of say a little bit Soviet tractor factory, isn't it? You build this using this energy source. Um, and it hasn't gone unnoted inside the Liberal Party, but at the same time, there is just, you know, there's an economic need for this stuff. And you talk, Velvet, about sovereign capability. That's the bit that we haven't discussed as much. Yes, there's a need to manufacture things again. Yeah, and the COVID crisis has exposed shortcomings in our ability to, to provide certain critical products, especially in the health area. And I think you can safely guarantee they will be made here from, from now onwards and the government will effectively subsidise that by using its procurement. You know, the state and federal governments will buy the locally made stuff. But it's, it's a bigger worry too with China. And this goes back to the defence speech the Prime Minister gave a few months ago. Uh, that we're just going to have to maybe get to the stage here. Uh, we're going to have to make stuff, not just to secure supply lines and stuff, but just for our own strategic interest as well, even if that means paying more. No one's talking about building cars here again or anything like that, but uh, certainly uh, you can't rely, and, and the COVID has exposed that you can't rely on uh, the free flow of goods around the world as we once did. 
Look, I think that's right. I mean, we've done some research looking at contribution to GDP and, and government spending in certain industries over the, the last 10 years, and we're about to release a report on that. And manufacturing, which is no great surprise, contribution to GDP is reduced from something over 6% down to just over 4% in the last 10 years. And certainly we've seen uh, among our client base and, and just generally, you know, reduction in local manufacturing as um, things, the cost of doing business in Australia continue to go up and, you know, companies started to drift away to offshore locations or shut down altogether. And and as Phil has said, the the pandemic has exposed weaknesses in our supply chain and really showing our over-reliance on overseas manufacturing. So I guess um, strategies and and concessions and support for local manufacturing move back into local manufacturing. We certainly see that as a big tick. It's never going to get back to the areas, probably as Phil said, we're not going to be making our cars as much and the like, but some of the other more important or necessary items, certainly we would support that. The, the discussion around some of the other areas, you know, increased spend in renewables, but again, a big tick and certainly increased spend in, in respect of the digital economy, uh, you know, great positives that, um, we would see as being compulsory for this government and the next to continue to support moving forward. Now, Phil, you've sat in on every update in Canberra. You've witnessed the interplay between state and federal. And at one stage, they were getting along really well. Where does the power for change and to grow out of the recession really sit? And will everyone continue to play nicely when the health crisis is gone? Answering the second question first, no. Um, they've already stopped playing nicely. As I'm speaking to you, the Prime Minister's up in Queensland for a week, ostensibly selling his budget, but there also happens to be a state election up there in a couple of weeks. And he's quite popular up there, and he won't say it publicly, but they know that's going to help Deb Frecklington up there, uh, the opposition leader. So Anastasia Palaszczuk won't be too happy about that. And we've already seen the tensions with Victoria as well playing out. Look, the, the, the power for change to go out of the recession is going to rely on both the states and the Commonwealth. They're both going to have to pull in the same direction. The National Cabinet, I think, has been a really good idea. And just because they're not getting on so well at the moment, that actually makes it even more important because uh, there's nothing better than forcing everyone to you know, sit in the same room, even if it's over laptops, uh, every every um, you know, every couple of weeks or every month and, and talk. I mean, they've all got the, everyone's got the same agenda, and that's to try and fix the joint. There's just differences of opinion on what's the best way of doing it. And, 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 and the partisanship always comes into it. But, you know, this thing has really exposed the flaws in federation. It's just that the, the, the powers that the states still have that we've probably largely forgotten they did have. They haven't exercised them for 100 years. And we've seen politically motivated border closures that have caused massive economic damage. We've seen the stuff down in Victoria, which if you're sitting outside of Victoria, is just inexplicable to watch the absolute disregard for the economy down there by the government. And, you know, they've got their cases down there now to a manageable level, levels that other states are managing quite well with their contact tracing and testing systems, but this stubborn refusal there to uh, to let up and pursue essentially an elimination strategy is going to cause massive damage. Well, it's already caused massive damage to the economy down there and it's going to cause even more. So sadly, there's nothing we can do about that. You can only, you know, the Commonwealth can only work with it. Uh, but you know, it, it wouldn't have been such a problem as the Northern Territory of South Australia, but when it's a state that constitutes 25% of the national economy, it's a problem for all of us. So hopefully Victoria gets its act together. Hopefully they, they, they move to back to the suppression strategy that the other seven states and territories have been using quite happily for many months. 
and and the politically motivated border closures in WA and uh, Queensland uh, get replaced with a much more efficient and equally safe hotspot national hotspot definition scheme, then we can you know pull ourselves out of the recession. But as long as politics is politics, no one's ever going to play nicely when there's an advantage to be gained at the expense of someone else. Both federal and state have a hand in creating jobs, and we've yet to hear from the states other than WA who handed down their budget last week. So sticking with federal, will initiatives like the Job Maker Hiring Credit really promote the creation of new jobs? And what about the other tax measures and business incentives? I, I think the, the job maker hiring credit will help. I mean, at, at this point in time, and you know, you don't need to be uh, Nostradamus, take a walk around and see how many businesses are struggling. A lot of it just has to do with cash flow. They're not making sales. They're struggling to, they're struggling with just carrying on business. So anything which assists and supports them to employ people, encourages them to employ people and try and get back on an even keel must be a positive. The, in terms of some of the other tax measures, and we briefly mentioned them before, I think some of them are really positive. The instant asset write-off, again, will help with encouraging business to invest in their businesses to try and kick, kick back along. The loss carry back provisions, which were introduced, I think is a real positive there in terms of um, being company, companies being able to uh, claw back tax paid in an earlier year to, to wash against losses generated in the current year. And I think you know, that's something that is is around in a number of countries overseas. And we've had it here once before back in 2013 mm. uh, for a year or two. And, and I think that was a positive step. And uh, the other one, which uh, we haven't spoken about, is reversal of some of the R&D cuts, which had previously been announced. The government's taking another look at that and deferring those. And I think that's an important one in terms of how we want to set up the economy moving forward and the need to uh, protect our R&D, look at keeping our R&D and developing R&D onshore. And that goes to the point that Phil and I were talking about before in terms of you know local manufacturing, smart manufacturing, all those other things. Uh, an important part of that is to support local R&D. So I, I think all those, those issues are, are certainly positives. Yeah, I agree with Vince. I mean, they're all targeted. They're all, as we said earlier, just pretty crude measures to create employment and generate private sector activity to create that employment. None, none of this is new. I mean, that these measures, you know, are all part of not Paul Keating's 1992 One Nation package to get us out of recession. Good package, just came too late. They should have done it a year or two earlier. A lot of these measures, again, were used by Labor around the GFC. So there's, there's sort of off-the-shelf, you know, recession-busting policies which get wheeled out you know, when we need them and they've sort of they've worked before just they can be better nuanced I mean I, I got I was I was long-term unemployed in 92 in my mid-20s and I, and I, I was the benefit of one of these job maker hiring credits it was called job starter back then there is a bit of waste involved with them they can have this thing called additionality and that's where you know an employer might be taking someone on anyhow and they think oh, well, I'll just take the they don't need the credit but they'll take it because it's there but that's you know, that's just a fact of when you, when you put a lot of money into something really quickly, you're always going to get a bit of that. But, but by and large, they do work and the advantage of them is they can be targeted towards age groups, as we've seen in this instance, and even specific sectors. Now, Vince, you've been working with corporates for decades. Would you have done anything differently? I think I've already spoken about some of the things you would have liked to have seen. You talked about the contribution of personal tax versus company tax as part of government revenue, and it's still... I'd still be pushing for fast-tracking some of the corporate cuts. 
and extending the corporate cuts up to mid-sized business as well, extending it beyond small business. I, I think that's, that's something that uh, we need to consider even in this environment, uh, again, from a, a couple, of, couple of areas, supporting those businesses to, to grow here, providing them with some extra cash and some extra capital and also the global competitiveness. It's shown that we've suffered in the global economy in terms of our inability to manufacture products here. The cost has been too much and we've, we've lost a lot of that. Uh, I think we need to do what we can to try and bring some of that back and reducing the costs on local business is one of them. So I think that's something that is, is still an important platform. I really like the loss carry back uh, provisions. As I said, it's something we've had before we brought them in. The UK have had them for ages. I think New Zealand have just brought them in. OECD have been talking about this as some good tax policy for business. So I'd like to see those brought in permanently because currently it's just a, it's a temporary measure to go for a few years. But I think that's something that I think the government should continue to track and it's something that I'd like to see them bring in on a, on a permanent basis. So they're, they're probably a couple of the bigger areas. Some of the other stuff like the instant asset write-off is fantastic. Whether that's something that could continue at that level forever is probably unlikely, but I think that's a great support at the moment. So far, we've been talking about cash splashes and cuts to support businesses and households through the recession. But there were no tax hikes, and it's been said net debt could reach close to a trillion dollars before the economy is stabilised. How do we go about paying that down? I'm not sure that it's going to be paid down anytime soon. I, I guess the, the philosophy here, and, and Phil's spoken about it, is that all these measures are encouraging business to grow, encouraging people to spend, and that'll kick the economy along. I think on the other side of it, because there's always that carrot and stick, I think on the other side of it, putting my tax hat on, you know, I acknowledge the government needs to pay for all this. So, so we're expecting to see substantial ATO activity, ensuring that even in this scenario and companies that are struggling and the like, they're going to look to see that they're paying their right level of tax. So there already is a raft of ATO reviews in respect of uh, JobKeeper recipients. We're also seeing a number of the ATO audit and review programs, which have been put on hold for the last six months or so, while their resources have been focused more on JobKeeper. Uh, but they're starting to kick back up later this month and, and next month in terms of tax risk reviews as a top 5,000 program getting down into the private companies and looking at um, their tax position. So we're expecting that certainly over the next 6, 12, 24 months that there'll be renewed ATO activity to ensure that, um, I guess, put it bluntly, do what they can to balance the books. Yeah, look, they're never going to pay down this debt. Not in our lifetime, <laughs> probably. Uh, I mean, the government's philosophy is grow the economy, and that's why they didn't increase taxes. They, you know, the liberal philosophy is grow the economy, generate economic activity that generates uh, revenue, and that, that that gets the budget back under control. Look, well, they'll pay the deficit down probably in fifteen or so years, maybe, assuming nothing else goes wrong and the, and the world recovers. But I think I don't know, Vince. I think the only time debts like this have ever disappeared is when there's been a world war. Um, <laughs> they'll just get written off not, not that we're advocating that but uh, uh well this is just uncharted territory for us um you know to have net debt at a trillion let alone gross debt uh, is, is 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 quite frightening uh, even though it's you know money's cheap at the moment it's not always going to be cheap so i suggest there'll probably be a greater urgency towards debt and deficit um, when and if rates ever start to rise bearing in mind the government said debt and deficit isn't their priority anymore under their new fiscal strategy. The strategy is to get unemployment down below 6%. 
which according to the budget won't happen until 2023-24 and only then will the focus turn towards debt and deficit reduction but I suggest uh, respectfully that's going to be someone else's problem uh, known in this parliament. Now it hasn't been announced but I think the smart money is on the budget returning to its usual cycle in May next year. What's your take on when the next budget will be handed down and what might be in it? Mm, good question. Um, we'll, we'll definitely be handed down in May. There is, remember, MIFO, the Mid-Year Economic and Fiscal Outlook. That's always released around December, and that's meant to become at the six-month period between the May budgets. So we're still going to have a MIFO in December. So in two months' time, we'll have that. Now, they can always be used, if need be, as a mini-budget. So uh, if there's, as we said at the, at the outset, if some of these measures need to be tweaked or uh, added to or new ones introduced, uh, they can do that at MyFO. But the big one, the big kahuna will be in May. Now that will be important for a couple of reasons. A, uh, because you know, obviously the economy it won't be in much better shape than it's in now. So budgets have a, a much bigger resonance to them now than they did just a year ago. But B, it'll probably, it will probably be a pre-election budget too. The, the government has to go to an election uh, sometime between sort of October, November next year and early 22. Now, they haven't made their mind up yet, but they're looking at all the options as, as a prudent government would do, and they will go when they think they've got the best chance of winning. So if the, if the economy is starting to recover strongly and there are good signs, that I, I suspect they'll go earlier than later um, towards Christmas next year. And that's why that, that budget will be very important to try and sort of accelerate um, economic growth. The view around in Canberra this, is that if Australia has sort of gone backwards or stagnated and is still largely a welfare state that will benefit the Labor Party. The coalition has to, you know, look, I think they'll win anyhow because the sort of stampede towards incumbents in a crisis, but um, nothing's guaranteed and, and they'll want to be showing results. You know, the unemployment rate coming down, growth on the way back, businesses opening. And even if it's off a low base, it doesn't matter if things are moving in the right direction. And so that budget will be very important as both an economic document and a political document. Yeah, I, I'd agree with Phil. I think it'll be I think it'll be May and, and in some ways I see it as like stage two or stage three of the recovery yeah. plan if you take into account my EFO. You know, an opportunity to look at the current measures to see what's working, see whether there needs to be some further stimulus measures or whether some of the ones which have been introduced need to be tweaked, you know, similar to JobKeeper. We had JobKeeper and then JobKeeper 2.0, you know, announced within three or four months. So I, I think given current environment, six months before the next budget is probably not a bad time for it to happen. Vincent Phil, thank you for your time. Pleasure. Thank you, Bill Bill. You can find further information on how COVID-19 might affect your business and assistance is available to you on the Grant Thornton COVID-19 Hub at www.grantthornton.com.au forward slash COVID-19. If you liked this podcast and would like to hear more, you can find and subscribe to Grant Thornton Australia on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. I'm Velvet Bell Templeman and you're listening to Boardroom Media.